0: Good morning, good morning. Thank you, worship team. My goodness. I told Joel, I can preach after that. That's good stuff. Oh, man, so glad to have you here. Justin is uh, uh, taking a much-needed break, and uh, so uh, I'm here with you, and I'm excited to continue on this conversation out of First Peter. We've been going through for a number of weeks now, and, uh, and I'm going to be looking in through uh, chapter 4, Verse 12 through 19 is where we're going to kind of hover as we get ready to kind of close out this conversation of of suffering. And um, as Peter's been trying to encourage this this group of Christians that have found themselves in a foreign land, uh, living and trying to figure out how to now take next steps given the circumstances that they're in. And uh, so this whole letter has been about how to help them through that journey and understand what next steps they need to take. Next week, Justin's gonna uh, wrap up this series looking at chapter five. Um, But this morning, uh, you can go ahead and put your thumbs, uh, bookmarks, uh, in uh, chapter four, verse 12. Uh, We're gonna get there in a second. But first, um, the year 1455 was an important moment in uh, our history. Does anybody know why? Any thoughts? 1455, big year for history. A man named Gutenberg created something called the printing press. Printing press allowed for mass production of books and material to be, you know, widely uh, uh, taken out to to the the population. And uh, a man named William Tyndale um, wanted to use this printing press to mass produce his English translation of the Bible. And at this time, to translate uh, the Bible from Latin to English was illegal. It was illegal to do this. But Tyndale wasn't stopped. He believed that the Bible should be accessible to everyone. He even once said that if God would spare his life, he would make it possible for even a plowboy to know about, more about the Holy Scriptures than the Pope himself. And in 1525, he produced out 6,000 manuscripts of the English Bible. And they took those manuscripts and they had to um, smuggle them into England. Because again, it was illegal for him to do this. At the time, all Bibles were in Latin and even church services were conducted in Latin. And it was believed that to to do it in any other language um, uh, was was problematic. And so the church held tightly to that. So for Tyndale to do this was a big deal. He had to smuggle these manuscripts into England in, in various different ways to get them out to the masses. Now the church at this time, was not too happy about what Tyndale was doing. And they didn't know really how to stop him because he was doing so much of it in secret. And so, what they decided to do is that as these um, uh, Bibles in English started coming into England, um, the church started buying up all the copies. They bought all the copies that they could get their hands on. In fact, um, um, they went in so far as to, as they bought them, they collected them all. And they burned them all. That's what they did. 6,000 copies. In fact, um, we only have three of these copies known in antiquity right now. Two of them are in museums. The Tyndale versions, is his first edition. Because they were all burned and destroyed. And this most certainly must have been very discouraging and frustrating to N- Tyndale, as you can imagine, his, his life's work, his, his mission, his belief that the Bible should be accessible to everyone and everyone should be able to learn. We take for granted, you can open your Bibles up on your phone. Like, it, the accessibility of this was his mission. And it all went up in flame and smoke. But the interesting thing about that story as the church was buying up all these Bibles just to destroy them, the money that was being brought in from buying and purchasing these Bibles was actually being funded back into Tyndall's work. So, all this money was actually raised, which allowed Tyndale to produce a second edition. It allowed him to continue his education and learning how to translate Hebrew into English and Greek into English. And, uh, and it allowed him to print a second edition that was um, uh, produced far more copies and sent out and distributed into more places. And that second edition, transla- English translation, became the backbone of of the most popular translation in the world, the 1611 King James Version. That's what came out of that. This reminds me of a story in the Bible uh, of a man named uh, Joseph, told in Genesis. And Joseph was a character that uh, um, was sold into slavery by, by his own family. His brothers uh, got rid of him, sold him into slavery. Uh, while in slavery, he, he worked in a household, and he was accused of sleeping with his boss's wife falsely accused and that landed him in prison at that point point. and while in prison uh he got to know a couple inmates and those inmates said that uh um if if uh, joseph helps them get out they'll remember him and get him out of prison when they get out and as those inmates were released they forgot about joseph and he was left in prison Circumstances unfolded to where Joseph was uh, put into a place of leadership over a series of events. And uh, he became second command in Egypt. Many of you know the story. And um, and there was a famine in the land. And Joseph was in charge of making sure all the food, um, uh, storehouses and everything. So they could get through the famine. And so many of the uh, region uh, areas around them would come into Egypt to get their food. Because there was no food. There was a great famine. And uh, the Israelites needed food. And so uh, Joseph's brothers come into Egypt to get food and they encounter Joseph and they don't know who he is yet. And uh, more events unfold and it gets to a point where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And his brothers are stricken with grief and sorrow and despair, realizing what they had done to their brother and and, and seeing him now in this position. And in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph makes these remarks and they're absolutely profound. He says, even though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good. Even though, talking to his brothers, what you did You meant harm to me. God meant it for good. Even though Tyndale probably was hearing the reports of all of these Bibles being bought up and then burnt, he was discouraged. But little did he know that God was behind the scenes, working it out so that a second edition could be more popular and more widely distributed and actually turn into the King James Version. This leads me into where we get with First Peter. And this lies a core belief. These two stories illustrate for us this core belief that's been carried out through the centuries. When suffering exists, God is close to those who suffer. God is close to those who suffer. God is active in the midst of suffering. He is not passive. He is active. And Peter begins to draw this out as he wraps up this section of his teachings. In verse 12, he says this, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Be very glad. He says, don't be surprised when trials, fiery trials and suffering, don't be surprised if something, you know, oh, I'm shocked by this. No, this is a reality that we face. Trial and suffering is a reality that we face. Don't be surprised. And then he makes an interesting statement that causes us to pause. He says, be very glad. In the New Living Translation, also you might rejoice and that seems counterintuitive, right? Because I know when I have times of suffering in my life, I don't feel very glad. Like I'm not, not happy about it. And, and it's interesting about this statement, be very glad or rejoice. The actual literal um, Greek uh, equivalent here in English is actually to jump for joy. So it's not just simply like be happy or or just to like, like, oh, you know, rejoice. It's to jump for joy. So like what is Peter drawing off of here? Why would he say that we should jump for joy when we are going through suffering? Because that's certainly not how I feel. Nor do I suppose that's how you feel when you're suffering and you're struggling. We don't feel like jumping for joy. So what's Peter drawing on in this moment? Well, he connects it to this identity and this reality that when we are suffering, we are partnering with Christ in his suffering. There is for followers of Jesus an inexplicable connection with suffering and the nearness of Christ. There is a connection That we need to understand that, that Peter's drawing on and has been for the centuries of Christianity thereafter a connection, a belief that when we are suffering we are closer to God than we have ever been. When you are in times of trial and struggling and suffering you are closer to God than at any other moment in your life. Jesus draws on this in a revolutionary way in his teaching in Matthew chapter 5 he gives in he starts into this discourse we call it the Sermon on the Mount and it's also told told in Luke's gospel and in it he begins with the series of teachings do you remember what it's called Matthew chapter 5 the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is called the what? The Beatitudes, thank you. Yes, the Beatitudes. And it's this lengthy kind of discourse on blessed are those that. Blessed are those that. Blessed are those that. And he names off different positions. Mourn, suffering, poor in spirit, persecuted. Um, Blessed are the peacemakers. Like he's going and drawing on this identity of people that exist in the world. That are hurting that are downtrodden, that are in suffering They're mourning This idea of blessed are the poor in spirit Is this identity of I have nothing left inside of me I'm, I feel empty inside Poor in spirit And he connects this idea of blessing to that Now this isn't simply like a, a reality of like When I'm in poor in spirit then I'm blessed So maybe I need to learn how to be poor in spirit So I can be blessed That's not what he's talking about here Jesus is talking about how God is near and connected to the very people that are in suffering and in want. God is closest to those people. And this would have been revolutionary for for the audience to hear this. Because like them, we also make the same mistake. The super spiritual, God must have, they must be really close to God because they seem very spiritual. They seem to have their act together together. Man, they seem to know a lot about the Bible. God must be very clear, close to them, and I don't know that much. And so, I, you know, my relation Like, they were probably sitting in the audience. we're not like the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They seem to have everything worked out. They know what they're doing. We're just, we're just fishermen. We're just farmers. We're just shepherds. We're, we're nobody. We're struggling just to get by day to day. I'm, tr- I'm struggling to pay my bills struggling to keep my relationship with my family intact struggling to coexist with my coworkers we're struggling and Jesus comes on the scene and says i am close to those people i am close blessed are those those people are closest to god when we read the beatitudes we should take comfort that he's speaking to us saying I'm with you. I'm with you. You may feel at times that God is far from you in suffering. You may feel like he's distant. Let me assure you, he is closer to you than he has ever been. If you are here this morning and there is a weight on you, there is, there in is, your heart, is heavy Let me assure you, God is closest to you. If you hear anything else this morning, I hope and pray you take that home. In the midst of suffering, God is closest to you. These words that Jesus speaks in the Beatitudes are of God's relentless pursuit and desire to partner with his creation To be close to his creation. Especially those who are in the lowest positions in life. He wants to partner with you. Which leads Peter on to his next section here. As he launches in. He says in verse 14. If you are insulted. Because you bear the name of Christ. Oh poor kid. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. Here it is again. For the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. You see, those that are partnering with God find themselves carrying the name of the one that joins them in the suffering. And that one is Jesus. Bearing the name of Christ Peter's riffing on this idea that he earlier introduced in chapter one of being a royal priesthood. So Peter already set the stage calling the people of God a royal priesthood. He likens them to priests, priests, representations of God to the people. And then by saying that they bear the name, he's taking it even further because in his culture the Jewish nation there were a people group called the Levites in ancient Israel And the Levites were the priests of the Israelites. They were the ones to represent God to the rest of the Israelites. And the Levites, when they were on the job, they had garments that they had to wear, certain clothing that they had to wear in the temple. Part of that clothing was like a breastplate that that was on their chest, and it had 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, They had certain cloaks that they had to wear in certain colors, and this is all outlined in... In Exodus and one of the things that they had to wear was a, a certain kind of hat and on the hat there was a plate across the front and on that plate that rested on their forehead was the name Yahweh the name of God the name of God was on their heads and this was a representation because the priests were those the ones that were to represent who God is. So that anytime the Israelites would look at the priests, they would see the name of God on them and be reminded of who God is and his promises. And so when Peter says that you bear the name of Christ... He's riffing on this priestly identity that he already introduced, talking about that we bear the name of Christ on our heads so that when people look at us, they ought to see God and Christ flowing out of us. And then in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, in the Ten Commandments, right? We have the second commandment there. Do not misuse the Lord's name, right? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. And and we have... um, um, uh, misunderstood this to, to equate it to language that we use, right? We say, oh, don't misuse it. Don't cuss, right? Don't take God's name in vain. Don't take Jesus' name. And don't use it in language in a derogatory way. And we shouldn't, absolutely. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about not simply what we say, but how we live. Because if you bear the name of the creator on you, and people now can look at you and see what it looks like when God is involved in the world, you better not misrepresent it because people are watching, because they're following your example. It's like mom and dad, right? When the kids first get their license and they, and they can drive out into the world without mom and dad being around, what do we tell our kids? Like, better not misrepresent us like you you're an oliver right like we we do you know these these things i remember telling michael when he was getting his job like buddy you're an oliver you represent me when you go into these workplaces you need to represent us well right be a hard worker right be respectful right these things that we tell our this because we represent the name of our family And this is what this is about. Do not misuse the name of the Lord. It has nothing to do with the language that we use, but everything about the life that we live. The calling for the Israelites is that they are being set apart, and now they are to represent God. Do that well. And so Peter's taking that, and he's onboarding it in this letter, saying that you are the priests. You have the name of Christ on you. How you live matters, How you live matters. Not simply how you live in a perfect sense, because what's the context? Suffering. How you live in suffering matters. And can I just say the world doesn't need more perfect Christians. I think I've said this before up here. The world doesn't need more perfect Christians, right? We know what those people look like the world needs to see broken people being reclaimed and renewed by Christ and living in that that way authentically in front of others that's what the world needs to see hey I'm just doing my best Christ is constantly remaking me and renewing me and I'm doing my best I'm not perfect but together we can work towards knowing who Jesus is right we don't need more perfect Christians authentic real because the reality is is that Peter says don't be surprised like I wish I could preach a sermon that says here's how to not suffer right here are the three things we do to not suffer I can't it doesn't exist because the only promise that we have is not that we will not suffer but that Christ will be close to us as we do the very nature of a cross which has puzzled uh, others for centuries that why is it that we take the very thing that crucified our Lord and Master and put it in a place of honor and worship? The cross that is, is, is nothing more than a, a, a tool to inflict pain and death. And yet Christ died on that. He suffered through that. And for centuries we have this cross as a symbol that as we suffer, we are partnering with Jesus. He is with us. We are connected to him in the midst of trial and suffering. And I wish I could preach a sermon about how not to suffer. But that's not the reality of the world that we live in. The real question, how are you going to live in the midst of suffering? Because that matters. You represent his name then in verse 15 if then we are to suffer and and to understand that Christ is with us as we suffer and that how we live matters there is a way that honors God and a way that dishonors God and verse 15 through 18, Peter begins to work through, like, if you suffer, however, it must not be for murder or stealing or making trouble, like he's saying, like, if we are suffering, we need to make sure we're doing it in a honorable way, like, like suffering for dishonorable ways, there is justice that's gonna come to those that do that, right? If you're suffering in a way that displeases or dishonors God, there is judgment, there is justice to come on that, right? And then verse 19 He begins to pull this all together for us. And we're going to sit in this for a little bit. So let me read it to you. He says, So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, which indicates for us Is there a way to suffer that's not honoring God? And I think there is. And that's a question that we need to wrestle with. Have you considered that? When was the last time you stopped to consider that maybe you haven't been suffering well? What does that look like? And now I'm not talking to the world in the sense of those who who do not submit their lives to Jesus. That's off to the side. I'm talking about us who say Jesus I will make you Lord and in the midst of the suffering the question is are you suffering well because our world is pretty broken and when I say are you suffering well I'm talking about what's your attitude what's your conversations like are you judgmental are you angry are you being spiteful hurtful with your words do you look down on others do you fight and quarrel Or are you operating out of love and respect, out of peacemaking and kindness? There is a way to not suffer well. And we see that in our world today from Christians, and it breaks my heart. We're not suffering well at times. But he says, if you are suffering well, and we need to wrestle with that, how has my attitude been in the midst of my suffering? What has my heart been like? Is it calloused? Right? Is it, is it, do, do I speak words that destroy versus words that bring life? He says, if you are, trust your life to God. Trust your life to God because he will never fail you. Trust is an interesting thing. This idea of trust in in who we trust, and we guard trust, right? As humans, we know what it's like to have trust broken, and so we're guarded with trust. And we only allow certain people to have that trust. And the real question is, where are you placing your trust? Is it in the media? Is it the news? Is it our government? Where is your trust placed? Because where we put our trust has a direct correlation in how we act and behave. Who do you trust? Where is your trust? Where is Jesus at on your hierarchy of what's important? What are you filling your life with that's giving you anxiety and fear and and, and worry and doubt? Who do you trust? Do you trust Jesus? I wonder for Tyndale, as he was hearing the reports of his work being burnt up. But God, I thought this was what you wanted me to do. But God, I thought this was a worthy cause, and now all of it's being burnt. And yet God was at work. As Joseph was sitting in prison, reflecting on his life, going, but god my my own family rejected me and sold me into slavery i was trying to be a faithful servant and then that blew up in my face and then i was trying like where are you at god and the whole time god is at work the reality is is that god is at work do you trust him do you trust that or do you let the worry and the fear and the and the uncertainty consume you to the point that now you're not suffering well? That's the challenge for all of us. And Peter says that God never fails. Jesus never fails you. You may not know what he's doing. That's different. He will never fail you. He will never abandon you. He is closer to you than you even know, working behind the scenes, doing something. And that drives us mad, doesn't it? God, if you could just give me a peek to rest my heart. My heart is heavy, God, if I could just see a little bit. Or we go the opposite direction. We say, God, I'm gonna work this out and I'm just gonna put the, this is what you need to do and I'm gonna put it in front of you and would you just bless it? And God, God says, no, I'm over here. I'm doing the thing that, I'm working this out over here. Where is your trust? Jesus will not fail you. He does not fail you. Would you consider placing your trust in Jesus? Jesus. You see, the media is going to fail you. The world is going to fail you. And unfortunately, even the church fails you at times. But Jesus will never fail you. You put your trust in Him. You put your trust in Him. Um, This past weekend, Jane and I, um, we had a little movie date and we watched uh, The Fellowship of the Ring right? JR Tolkien. How many know what I'm talking about, Fellowship of the Ring? Any fans out there? Okay, a few of you. Um, And uh, this is like a a fun movie trilogy, the the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, because early in our marriage, um, uh, we would go see these in the theaters when they were released. And um, they always released it in in, Christmas time, in December. And uh, every year, you know, they would release the next one. The next one, there were three of them. And uh, we would always go for like my birthday, Jane and I. So it was always like this thing that we do, like we love watching Uh, uh, The Lord of the Rings movies. I haven't read the book. Um, A little boring. I like the movie version. I'm just saying, just saying. I'm sorry for all you purists out there. Uh, I'm sure it's amazing. I just uh, don't care to read it. Um, But the movie's good. And we watched the movie. We watched the movie. And um, I was reminded of this scene in The Fellowship of the Ring that really just has always spoken to me. And the scene is the fellowship is on their journey and uh, they're trying to get to Mordor and they're on this path that they want to take, but then they were prevented on going the path that they they wanted to take. So they had to detour their path and they had to go to, through this place, through the mountain, uh, uh, Moria. And so um, they're in the mountain, right? They get in a series of events. Or they're on this path. It's, the whole thing's deserted because um, the, the goblins or whatever they're called took over the place. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I'm not a purist. I do love the movies, though. Um, and, uh, but the scene is that they're lost, they're lost in, in these mines, And so they're sitting there and they're waiting to figure out what they're waiting for Gandalf to show them how to get through uh, this next uh, stage. And while they're waiting and Gandalf is sitting there and they're, and they're all kind of just hanging out waiting. Uh, Frodo comes up to Gandalf and, and starts this conversation. And um, this is what, what, as it's written, uh, J.R. Tolkien writes it in The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, I'll read you this, this scene. He says, uh, I wish... It need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. He's reflecting on, he's carrying the ring and, and the burden of carrying the ring and having to destroy it and how, he's like, I, I just wish, I wish this fell on someone else's shoulders and not mine or at another time. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. Powerful. And we were watching that, and it just said, I, I gotta share that. Right? We live in troubling times. We lo- we have things happening in our lives and we go, gosh, I wish. I wish we didn't have to go through this. I wish I didn't have to experience this. I wish I didn't have to have these these things in in my heart and, and the heaviness. Like, yeah, so so does every generation that goes through tough times. But the real question is, how are you gonna live in the time that you've been given? And I think that's what Peter's working through with this group of Christians. How you live matters. What you do matters. You bear the name of Christ. Are you going to bear it well? What will you do with your time? I'd like to invite the worship team to come back on stage. And before we work through and and take our communion this morning, um, I want us to sit in this for a minute You know, um, I have the pleasure of living life with many of you in different capacities and hearing struggles and frustrations. I have the honor and pleasure to be praying with many of you, the honor and pleasure to suffer alongside with you and to walk alongside many of you. And I hear what's going on and no doubt many of us have come into this place Or maybe you're watching online and you're sitting at home and there's a weight and there's a heaviness. The anxiety of the unknown and the frustration of what your life looks like right now. And you're worried and you're frustrated. Many of you are suffering deeply. I want you to know that God is with you. I want you to hear me say this. God is close to you. He's right there. He's right there. I've said before that if you want to find out where God's at and what God's doing, find those who are suffering and in a want, because that's where He's at. He's with you. He's with you. I want us to sit in that for a minute because some of us struggle with actually believing that and I get it get it because we can't see what he's doing so our trust is really low right we struggle because we go God I don't know what you're doing where are you at why can't I see you And maybe the story of Tyndale, maybe the story of Joseph can help encourage you this morning that just because you don't see him doesn't mean he's not working on your behalf. That he loves you. He loves you deeply. He cares about you and everything that you experience. He's with you. Would you just sit? Let's close our eyes and, and just... sit in this reality and would you begin to just talk to Jesus because he's here maybe you need to lay at his feet the burdens and worries and stresses of your life the fears the doubts the uncertainties you can tell him about it you can express your frustration you can cry at his feet He's listening. He's here. Let's let him speak to us just for a few minutes.